0: The most exciting thing that I carry is my foundation and understanding of the hair care industry and working with stylists. Because stylists, they are the backbone of this industry. I remember growing up in Tallahassee and, you know, back in the day before I even had a relaxer, we'd have to get up and go to the hairdresser. And you went to the hairdresser on those special occasions like Easter, Mother's Day, and you would sit in that chair and she took that straightening comb and it was fried, dyed and laid to the side. And you better hold your head down, hold your ears so you didn't get burned. And to see that evolution go from the hot comb to the straightening comb to the relaxer to the color and truly understanding proper application, proper care of your hair, because people will blame a product, say the product took my hair out. And when I worked with stylists, the stylists would always tell me, it's not the product, it is the application. If you do not know what you're doing, yes, you could damage your hair. And really getting that true understanding and foundation of hair, of the consumer, of the stylist, and the role that they have played in everybody's hair journey. That's what I value the most.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new season of Start Right Here. We are the podcast that puts the spotlight on the career paths of BIPAC beauty professionals, entrepreneurs, and creatives, as well as issues related to beauty and inclusion impacting us in the industry, as well as impacting consumers. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope that conversations on this show help fuel your path to success. Hi, everybody. I am pleased to welcome today a woman who has mastered the art of working in corporate beauty. Jo Laurie Williams is the general manager of Revlon's Multicultural Group and Contract Services. And today we're going to talk about making it on the corporate side of beauty and what it takes to work at some of the biggest beauty companies in the world, because Joe Lori's been at a lot of them. So I'm really excited to welcome her today to hear about her journey. Welcome, Joe Lori.
0: Thank you so much. Oh my God, you make me feel like I'm so important here.
1: <laughs> well, you are.
0: And I love it. I just think of myself as a little old country girl from Tallahassee, Florida, that has been able to climb the corporate ladder, get a seat at the table in the Sweet Seat and being a product of an HBCU school. So I'm like, woo, this feels good.
1: I'm glad, I'm so glad. Before we start talking about your career path, let's begin with some fun questions in our For the Love of Beauty section. What was the first beauty product you ever tried or bought?
0: First beauty product I ever tried, from makeup?
1: Whatever, it could be hair, it could be makeup, it could be skincare. (laughs)
0: My first beauty product, I'll do makeup, was Fashion Fair. I grew up on Fashion Fair cosmetics from a foundation standpoint and from a mascara. I cannot remember the name of it, but when I went to the Fashion Fair cosmetic counter, they could match my skin tone. And I learned when I was on the Lancôme side, if people cannot match their skin tone And you don't go to a counter where people understand our skin. You're not going to like what you're going to get. So that was my first true beauty product.
1: And that's a great one. And once I was speaking with a big brand and people who work on the sales force, and I told them that you only have the one time to get it right. Yes. If you don't get it right, the customer loses faith in you, not only you, but in the brand.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That is so true. What
1: is the latest beauty product you tried?
0: The latest beauty product that I tried, I used it this morning as a matter of fact, the Cream of Nature Scalp Relief Cleansing Gel. Because when you're in protective styles, you can't do that shampoo. So this is a scalp cleanser that I put on. It's in a jelly form. It has menthol in it. It has peppermint. It has aloe. And of course it has honey. coconut and shea. So I put it on, I take a slightly damp cloth and I cleanse my scalp. And then I follow through with the aloe and black castor root recharge serum.
1: And what's the beauty advice you would live by or leave alone?
0: My one beauty advice that I live by is drink lots of water. It's good for your body. It's good for your skin. It's good for your hair. The one beauty thing I would love to be able to leave alone, but I know I cannot leave alone is lotion. I got to have lotion. I put it on two or three times a day because, you know, I have very dry skin. And then during the winter month, now that we're home and I wear more yoga pants than anything, I still put lotion on. I still lotion my complete body, my hands, my feet, my face. And even like every time I go wash my hands, I'm putting lotion on. If I scratch my leg and I see a little bit of ash, I'm putting lotion on. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I got on yoga pants. Ain't nobody in here but me.
1: Yeah, it's a ritual though. That's why you keep doing it. It's a ritual. <laughs> yes.
0: But there are times I wish I didn't have to do it as much as I do do it. And I think it's just because you grow up as a child that you've got to put lotion on because your mother's not going to let you walk out the house ashy. You got to put that lotion on. And my mother, the worst experience I had Once was my mother as a child, I had some ash here and I hated the fact she did it. She took our finger, put it in her mouth and then took a little spit and put on my face. And I was like, oh my God. And I've seen so many parents do their kids like that. What my grandmother would do once we would get our hair pressed, if you had a little ash on your forehead, she would run her hand over your hair to get a little bit of that grease and rub it on your forehead to get rid of the ash. I was like, oh, my Lord, can somebody just give me some lotion?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you keep lotion by your side at all times. Is the beauty industry a destination or a detour for you?
0: I would honestly say at the beginning of my professional career, it wasn't on my radar. Because I started at Bristol-Myers, I was working in what I consider over-the-counter drugs like Excedrin and Bayon deodorant and Contracts. And at the time, Bristol-Myers owned a division called Clairol. And one of my friends who had transferred from our division to Clairol called me one day and said, hey, there's an opportunity in marketing here at Clairol working on the ethnic brands. And he sent me a care kit so I can see what brands they had. And then I was a salon girl and beautiful collection I knew. I just never knew Clara own beautiful collection. And that was my go-to semi-permanent hair color. I really got excited about it. I went to my HR person, said, hey, I want to explore this. Interviewed, got the job, and I've never looked back. And beauty has become that destination of what I love, what I wake up feeling very proud and happy to do every single day of my life, because there's an honor when you can create products for yourself and that you really have to put your stamp of approval on them from testing on your hair to the touch and feel of the formula, the smell, the color, the verbiage. And you have to ask yourself, you know, as a consumer, is this a product for me?
1: Yeah, I love it. So it's not just a job, it's kind of a mission.
0: It is. And I'm so happy you said that. I went from having a job to a career to a passion and a mission. That's major. And not everybody can say that.
1: Your time at Bristol Myers Squibb and Claro, what did you learn there that set you up for success later?
0: If you're passionate and you're a true subject matter expert about the products you work on, about your vision, your strategy, then people are gonna lean in and listen. You also have to realize too that when I entered into this ethnic category, as it was called back then, it was called ethnic and it gave me an opportunity to truly understand the foundation and the culture of ethnic care from its humble beginnings where you would walk into a Walmart or a Walgreens and we were on the bottom two shelves because that's all we had. Now we have complete aisles We have beauty supply stores that cater to us. We have hair shows that cater to us. You have women who have made that journey from relaxed hair to natural hair. So when I started there, I could see the evolution. I could see the growth. And I truly wanted to be a part of it. And I truly stayed the course to be a part of it. And it took me from truly understanding the foundation to now setting the stage for the next evolution.
1: That's amazing. What's interesting is that even though we had those bottom shelves and sometimes it looked dusty, we still spent more money. Yes. We still found the product. We fought to find the product, bought the product, and spent more than any other racial, ethnic group on beauty, particularly on our hair. Having all of these options now, particularly for all the kinds of ways that we wear our hair, is
0: amazing. I mean, when you think about it, Like you said, back then we spent the most, but we were not the majority of the population. We still spend the most. And even during COVID times, our hair care is considered an essential need, not a luxury, but an essential need. And we're still going to invest in our hair, whether we're wearing it relaxed, we're making that journey to natural, or we're already there or we're doing protective styles like I'm doing. And the versatility of our hair makes us so unique and different. Everybody wants to get into the hair care business because they know we're committed, we're dedicated, and beauty for us starts here with our crown. It is not about us trying to be a size two because I, I, for one, am not a size two, but we're going to spend the money and we still spend the most money on hair care products.
1: What are you most proud of about your time at Claro?
0: Probably for me, the most exciting thing that I carry is my foundation and understanding of the hair care industry and working with stylists stylists they are the backbone of this industry. I remember growing up in Tallahassee and, you know, back in the day before I even had a relaxer, we'd have to get up and go to the hairdresser. And you went to the hairdresser on those special occasions like Easter, Mother's Day, and you would sit in that chair and she took that straightening comb and it was fried, dyed, and laid to the side. And you better hold your head down, hold your ears so you didn't get burnt. And to see that evolution go from the hot comb to the straightening comb, to the relaxer, to the color, and truly understanding proper application, proper care of your hair. Because people will blame a product, say the product took my hair out. And when I worked with stylists, the stylists would always tell me, it's not the product, it is the application. If you do not know what you're doing, yes, you could damage your hair. And really getting that true understanding and foundation of hair, of the consumer, of the stylist, and the role that they have played in everybody's hair journey. That's what I value the most.
1: Amazing. And I can echo that because my grandmother was a hairdresser. So I kind of grew up around hair and ended up on this side of the business as an editor. But I know how to do hair. That's the other part of it because of it, <laughs> because this is my grandmother, but also because I had a really, really keen interest in the subject matter. Then you moved to L'Oreal. Tell us about the positions. So you had a few positions at L'Oreal. What are the biggest learning curves you faced in each of them?
0: In my first position, staying in the multicultural arena with Sheen Carson, probably the biggest hurdle there is understanding how to make a brand global. Because when you're in Sheen Carson, you work on the domestic side, but you have a huge global business. And so you're trying to set the strategy for the positioning and the DNA of the brand on a global basis while still understanding the consumer dynamics in South Africa, in the UK, in the Caribbean. So that was the biggest hurdle I had to, I wouldn't say overcome, but a hurdle that turned into an opportunity for me to expand my knowledge base. I don't believe in issues. I believe in opportunities to do things differently, opportunities to learn and to grow. Yes, yes, yes.
1: From global marketing, then what did you go at L'Oreal after that?
0: So then after that, I felt like I had reached that ceiling in the multicultural space in the world of L'Oreal. So I wanted to diversify my experience and my knowledge base. So I did a stint in Lancôme, which is luxury and which is all makeup. And so it's a different distribution channel, different consumer, different category altogether that I knew nothing about, but wanting to learn. And I saw the opportunities for Lancôme to build their consumer base to include African-American women. Because at that time, they really didn't talk to African-American women. They would have some products. They would have like five or six shades. You couldn't find them everywhere because they weren't selling because they didn't tell anybody that they had them. So to be able to go into Lancôme and truly try and bring that multicultural consumer into the world of Lancôme was another hurdle. It also said to me that wasn't my passion, that while I was learning and growing, I missed working on what I call a smaller entrepreneur brand where you have more control and you could put your stamp on it and you have the ability to act quickly. And we used to say when I moved to Estee Lauder, Fail quick, fail cheap, but it was okay to fail.
1: Right. What's really interesting in what you said is while you learned a lot and took it as an opportunity to bring in your core consumer, the consumer you cared about most, into the long-home business, it just didn't ring true as a place that you wanted to spend long-term because it didn't have a mission of serving that consumer over everything else.
0: Right. And I didn't feel the same level of passion and excitement that I do in multicultural hair. When you went to
1: Origins, you were working in applied marketing. What is applied marketing? I'm sure you know this as a marketing professional, but marketing roles have changed so much. Yes. And there are so many now, and that means many opportunities, but... How do you keep abreast of that and prepare yourself to meet those needs?
0: And you're so right. Marketing has evolved from the time I graduated from school and entered into marketing in the world of Clairol to when I went over to Origins. And that's when marketing really started to take on different forms. You would have promotional marketing. You would have events. You would have integrated marketing. You would have innovation marketing, and you would have what they call diffusion marketing. Applied marketing is a combination of promotions and diffusions. So you had a specialty area that you focused on. In the world of Origins, Origins is really looked at as an entrepreneurial brand. Because it's small, you can do things and you have more control. And they have freestanding stores, which is something I never had that experience for. And so when I got the opportunity to work in Origins, one, it was taking me into skincare. Two, it was allowing me to work on a brand that was small, but still growing. And then three, it gave me the ability to work hand in hand with Jane Lauder, the granddaughter of Estee Lauder. And that was priceless to be able to work with someone whose family founded a business and who works side by side with you. She didn't walk around like, hey, I'm Jane Lauder. This is what I expect you all to do. This is what I'm going to do. She wasn't like that. The experience and the exposure to be able to make a difference in those stores, to be able to motivate the people who work in the stores, to get excited about new product launches, to be able to go into the stores and learn hands-on about skincare. I remember part of my onboard training was I had to learn how to give a mini facial. And I was like, y'all got to be kidding me. They were like, nope, you got to learn how to give a mini facial. And so I said, okay. And we all had to go through it. Jane, everybody had to go through that training. So we had a more one-on-one connection of what the guides went through in the store. So as we're developing new products and developing new techniques, we now have that insight of that hands-on and what happens at that store when you engage with that consumer. So I loved my time there. I really loved my time there. It allowed me to really take on a true entrepreneurial spirit. It really did.
1: We talk a lot about the entrepreneurial journey, and that's a really great example of using entrepreneurial skills in a corporate environment, which is going to be increasingly, I think, more and more important as big companies try to also recreate like the boutique brand or acquire boutique brands. So it's a fascinating idea to do that. I remember one story that I wrote. One of my first jobs in magazines was at L, and I worked in the beauty department and I had this idea. This is when Prescriptives was a big brand. I went to Prescriptives makeup training and I worked in two stores for the day. I went to Nordstrom's, probably Garden State Plaza, somewhere like that. And I went to one other store with like one of the training managers. And put makeup on consumers. And that's a humbling experience. You think you know a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Until you're in front of a customer and you actually have to do it. You know, then you're also trying to sell at the same time. So I learned quite a bit from that little adventure. Plus the fact that the store managers were like, we're not sure, she doesn't work here. We're not sure we want her on the floor. (laughs) So we had to like sneak. It was crazy. You moved over to Revlon and back in professional hair care. Yes. You talked earlier about your time at Clarol and working with stylists, but can you expand a little bit more about brand for professionals, geared toward professionals versus a brand geared toward consumers? What are the differences?
0: Big difference. The professional side, they are concerned about the functionality of the product and what it can do to the hair at all levels because they are fide certified cosmetologists, they went to school, so they understand the products. And you could talk technology with them because they understand technology and they understand the benefits of technology and what it does to the medulla, the cortex and the cuticle. And they'll tell you everybody doesn't have a medulla, but they understand the terminology, cortex, cuticle, hair shaft, they talk about how to make the hair stronger, they talk about the bonds. Consumers don't have a clue. They just want to know, is it going to make my hair feel good? Is it going to stop the shedding? Is it going to stop the breakage? And they want to talk about ingredients, natural ingredients, not technology. Consumers have been very clear. I've been in focus groups where I've heard consumers say, if it's technology and I don't understand how to pronounce the word, I'm not using it. And they feel that natural ingredients are more potent than technology, because they feel like technology is science, that this product is made in the lab, it's not really natural, it's not going to give me any benefits that I know and believe natural ingredients can give me. So the stylist, hands down, they love technology. The consumer, hands down, it's natural ingredients. Because if you ask consumers about natural ingredients, and you say Jamaican black castor, they're going to tell you Jamaican black castor grows hair. There is not one piece of data that says it will grow your hair but they truly believe and perceive it's going to grow their hair because somewhere along the lines, somebody bought it, put it on their hair and the hair stopped shedding and their hair grew. And they will attribute that to that one ingredient. It's the same thing with coconut oil because they learn the benefits of these ingredients. And so when they go to shop, they shop for the ingredients and they shop for solutions to their hair problems. Because I think about honey, when we launch honey, Everybody knew honey was a humectant. It's all about conditioning and moisturization and hydration. Number one issue we have as women of color with textured hair is dryness. So we want things that are going to put moisture into the hair. But they also know it's not one ingredient by itself. So we added coconut oil and we added shea butter. Those three ingredients combined will give you moisturization. It's going to give you shine, good conditioning, good slip, good feel on the hair. They also are very clear on the packaging. Keep it simple. If you make it like it's a book to read, they're not going to read it. They want to know very clearly what's in it, what does it do, and what's not in it. So they love to see the nose on the front of the package. It doesn't contain sulfates. It doesn't contain drying alcohol. It doesn't contain petrolatum. It doesn't contain mineral oil. Because the evolution of the African-American consumer, she's become very savvy about reading the labels, She understands what some of these ingredients are, and she's very clear. Tell me what's in it. Tell me what's not in it. It better have some natural ingredients in it. It better smell good, and I better understand what it is you're trying to sell me.
1: This is so very, very true, but I love that there's a clear difference that stylists who are professionals are interested in the technology and how it works, and consumers are interested in what's in it. Now, stylists are interested in what's in it too, but they want to know how what's in it makes it work well. That's really interesting. In your current role as general manager of the multicultural division and contract services, you're not only involved in the bottom line of the brand, but you're really also guiding the company in its footprint in the consumer's communities.
0: Yes. So
1: why is that important to you?
0: The thing that I think about when I came into this division in 2014, and then when I got elevated into the C-suite, it was important for me to be able to say, what does Cream of Nature stand for within the community that has supported it for well over 40 years? And I tell people all the time, we are not Black-owned, we're not Black-founded, but we are Black-born, meaning we were born within the Black community, because if you ask anybody about Cream of Nature, they say, yeah, shampoo and conditioner. That's what I grew up with. And we've been around for over 40 years. We have remained authentic and true to this consumer. So when the movement of Black Lives Matter happened, we wanted to show our commitment to the community and we supported him or her. And so that's when we created the Legacy to Leadership Initiative, really focusing on HBCUs. HBCUs have been around for years. And they're just now really getting the recognition, being really put at the forefront to say, if you attend an HBCU school, your education is just as good, if not better, than an Ivy League school. Because you think about all of this came about with Kamala Harris being the first African American woman VP and a product of Howard. You got Stacey Abrams, a product of Spellman. You got Keisha Lance Bottom, a product of FAMU. So for me, when I started thinking about what can we do within this community and what we call ourselves a legacy brand, my first and only option was education, HBCUs, and really showing how the HBCUs are legacies that are now producing leaders and putting them into leadership positions, i.e. legacy to leadership. And that's how we started that initiative.
1: Okay, so tell me more about the initiative. How do students take advantage of this program?
0: Well, when we initially kicked it off in December of last year, it was about scholarships. We wanted to give out scholarships to HBCU schools. But the first thing I said to our senior team was that I did not want this to be a one-time program. I wanted to launch and leverage and continue to build upon it each year to make it bigger and better. But the foundation will always be HBCU students. We partnered with UNCF for phase one of our scholarship initiative, where we gave out $100,000 in scholarships. Students had to submit a video that talked about legacy to leadership, what was going to be their legacy, and then what were they looking to do from a leadership position as they grow outside of college. And we only expected about 200 students to apply. We had 610 videos. And we had to watch every last one of those videos and we had to narrow it down to 20. When I shared with our CEO, Debbie Perlman, the results of this, she said to me, how much bigger can you make this? Because she said, this is good, but we need to make it better. And I said, okay. I said, Debbie, I told you from day one, this wasn't a launch and leave. This was a launch and leverage initiative. So now we're moving into phase two, which is a pitch competition with Thurgood Marshall. And so what we're doing there, students go online at the Thurgood Marshall website, or they can go to the cream of nature, www.creamofnature.com and apply as well. They have to have a 275 they need to be actively enrolled in an HBCU school, they need to be in good standings, everybody knows what good standings mean, and you fill out the application, and we're looking at students that really have the desire to work in teams, the desire to be creative, the desire to think out of the box, the desire to problem solve, and to be able to be true innovators. And we want to give them that hands-on entrepreneur type of experience. You know, like what you said earlier, that's what we really need to be focusing on more than what we have in the past in school. And we want to be able to tell you how to take your textbook learning and apply it to problem solving that creates a desire for a product for the consumer. So it's a fascinating case study that the last day to apply will be October 21st. We will be selecting a total of, I think it's 30 students. So 30 students will be selected. They will be put into teams. They will be given a case study. And then they in turn will pitch the case study back to a very diverse group of judges. And then we will select first, second, and third, but everybody's going to win something because I do not believe in kids not winning nothing.
1: I understand that. I think that this is a tremendous idea. The students don't actually necessarily have to be interested in beauty in order to apply. I mean, this is supporting HBCUs and the dreams of those students and whatever ideas that they have. Yes. That work.
0: Yeah. And the teams are going to be very diverse because you may have a marketing person, a biology, an IT engineer, a public relations. So we wanted to make sure that the teams are very diverse. And the other caveat to this is that the teams will be from all different schools. So not all team members will be from FAMU or from Spelman. You might have one person from FAMU, one from Spelman, one from Howard, one from Tennessee State. We wanted to make sure it was diverse from a major standpoint and diverse from the different schools.
1: How long will the students have to work on this project once they're chosen?
0: The thing that I found was real interesting when we were working with Thurgood Marshall, they said they give the students 72 hours. I was like, are you kidding me? They said they give them 72 hours and they say, you will be surprised what students can do in 72 hours. But you know what? I had to think about it. Because in my role, you never know what you're going to get faced with throughout the course of the day. I have been in situations where things have come up overnight because we also work with Spain. So there's a time difference where they will send me something. And when I log into my computer at 5 a.m., there is a situation I need to address. And I literally sometimes will have a day to address it, put a plan in place as to how we're going to turn it around. But that's the real world in which we live in today. The days of where you had two, three weeks to do something is long gone. When you have an opportunity, you have to figure out how to capitalize on it really quickly, and you have to be able to say, this was the situation. This is how I'm going to solve it. This is where I see the growth potential, and this is how big of an idea this is. Because you think about a lot of these entrepreneur brands are born overnight somebody had an idea and they got up the next day, they started working on it. And then before you know it, within a week's time, they're applying for a patent. They have a prototype. They're sitting across from a buyer trying to sell it in.
1: Yeah. And the 72-hour thing is very much like the lean startup model, the boot camps. I've been through one of those. And that experience, once you've done that experience, you never forget it because it teaches you a lot. And actually some people that were on my team have gone on to come up with some great ideas, not the product that we worked on, but something that they thought of while they were there and then built amazing brand. So there is value in that. How has being a graduate of FAMU kind of impacted your career trajectory and the way that you operate in business?
0: A couple of things I think about as my journey and my humble beginnings at FAMU, growing up in Tallahassee. I think about SBI, the School of Business and Industry under Dean Mobley. When I first entered SBI, SBI was, for lack of a better term, like a boot camp. We were taught how to dress. I wore a suit four days, sometimes five days a week. We had to wear pantyhose. You had to have a certain heel height. Your makeup had to be done a certain way. Your hair, color of your nails, the color of your suits. We carried briefcases. They taught us from day one how to integrate yourself into corporate, how to remain in corporate, and how to really showcase who you are outside of them just looking at the color of your skin. We were taught how to read the Wall Street Journal. We were taught how to give speeches, how to be able to develop a presentation and put that presentation together and come across as a true subject matter expert and understanding your audience and guiding them. I think back to the first time I had to do a presentation when I left FAMU, and back in the day, I'm going to date myself a little bit. Back in the day, we had the acetates where you put on the overhead projector. So you had to do your PowerPoint. Sometimes you had to draw on it with a wax pencil. And now I do PowerPoint presentations where As I shared with you earlier, I rehearse these presentations because when you're in SBI, you get a topic that you have to prepare for and you have to be able to present it in a manner that takes the audience on a journey down the path that you want them to go on. And I think about my presentation skills at FAMU, why I had to touch, turn, talk. I know how now to have eye contact with my audience when I'm presenting. I know how to listen to my audience when I'm presenting. I know how to take a breath, but I also understand that I have to come across as a true subject matter expert. When I see people staring at me with a straight face, I always try to open my presentations with something humorous to kind of set the tone for the room. And I love to see people lean in when I'm talking. That means I got you. And so I'm going to make sure you stay leaned in. And then when I'm done, I want you to sit there with that wow factor to say, damn, she knows what she's talking about. This is a great idea. And that's how we served up legacy to leadership to Debbie Perlman. And she loved it. And she said, how big can you make this?
1: Oh, that's fantastic. What do you think the unsung skill is to make it in the beauty industry?
0: The one thing that I see a lot of people kind of miss a little bit in the beauty industry is truly being able to pivot. Because when you are sitting across from a buyer and you're selling in your new products that you have worked all this time on, you've done your research, you've got the best formula, best packaging, you've gone back to consumers, you talk to them. And then when you're sitting in front of a buyer, one, you have to know who your buyer is to know what is going to be the motivators to get her to say yes, because she is the gatekeeper. She is that gatekeeper you got to get past in order to get your product on the shelf. And if she starts putting up walls as to why she doesn't think it's a good product or why she doesn't think it's the right thing, you got to be able to pivot and you have to be able to address her questions and her issues. I think a lot of times I've been in meetings and I've listened to the buyer say to me, well, such and such showed me a product and let me tell you what I liked and what I didn't like. So in my mind, I'm pivoting my presentation of what I'm going to serve up to her. And even when she even calls me out to say, last year you sold me this product and this product is not turning. What makes you think this product is going to turn? You got to be able to pivot. You got to own your mistakes. And you have to say, you know what? It didn't perform to the expectations of what I thought, but what I have learned is the frequency of use is not as great as what we anticipated. And you are right, but this particular product, we did more research and the research is showing this. So my recommendation is we bring in this product and we take this one out. Know when to say I failed, or know when to say I researched and I did better on this research and this is why I believe this product is going to do better than what I sold you last time. People don't know how to pivot when these roadblocks come up. So you gotta do your homework. You got to be able to say it didn't work, but let me tell you why it didn't work, but let me tell you why this one will work.
1: Okay. So you also need to know your product intimately.
0: Yes. And when I tell you I have, and I don't even want to show you because I'm in my home office. I have a file drawer, one of those mobile little rolling carts where I have vials and jars of lab samples that they have sent. I'm either smelling it for the fragrance level. I'm looking at the color. I'm taking it to the stylist. I actually have mannequin heads here that I put the products on and test. Oh, I'm good at a mannequin head. Now I can style a mean mannequin head. (laughs) But trying to put it on my own hair? Now I'll be the first to admit, I can style a mannequin head, but I cannot style my own hair. But to your point, you got to be so intimate with that product because as a woman of color, who is making and selling products to women of color, I need to say without a reasonable doubt, this product will work. This product is addressing her needs. And The other thing I tell people too, who want to get in this industry, go work in a beauty supply store. And when you walk in a beauty supply store, you talk about endless products and what people are coming in there looking for and understanding the features and benefits of the product. I tell them also, go to a Walmart, go to a Target, go to a Walgreens, just go down the aisle and stand there and watch people as they shop. And then go up to them and ask them, can you tell me why you bought this product? I've been looking at it, but I wasn't sure about it. And then I've said to them, I've tried Cream of Nature. What do you think of Cream of Nature? I've had women tell me they got some great shampoos and conditioners. But they said, when it comes to this particular styling product for my hair, this is what I use. Let me tell you why I use it. We will talk to you and we will tell you. We do not have a problem talking. I've had women in focus groups where I'm standing behind that window and we ask them to bring in products that they use and why they use it. I've seen women come in with shopping bags of products. I've seen women come in with plastic Tupperware bowls where they are making their own products. And they're talking about what they're making, why they're making. And I've seen women in those focus groups pull out that pen and paper and start writing, pull out their phones, take pictures. And they're asking each other about these products. That level of intimacy in your consumer is priceless.
1: That is so true. There was so much gold in what you said, particularly when we talk about hair and finding what works and sharing information. Because we all want to win. We all want our hair to look the best. So being a driver of creating product that answers that need, that when you say it turned into a passion, I can see why it's a passion. Because (laughs) you're helping to fuel those conversations and answer the needs that you're seeing. Finally, in this last section of the podcast, I want to leave our listeners with some concrete steps on where to begin. So let's go into our starting five that take away tips from our guests. As I said at the top of the show that you've worked at a lot of the giants. I mean, Bristol Myers-Webb, Claro, L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, Revlon. What tips could you offer to our listeners on making it in the big company and then succeeding in a new role there?
0: Well, the first thing I always say to people, especially like the students and then even some of the young ladies that I mentor, we invest a large amount of our day working. So you got to be passionate about whatever it is you want to do with your life. I always say to them, have a passion for it because it'll make going to work a lot more enjoyable. I always say to them, do your research, understand the company that you're going into, understand career opportunities. I always tell them, own your career. Don't let anybody else own your career.
1: Can you say more about that? What does own your career mean?
0: That means know exactly what it is you want to do and what is your career plan. Make sure that when you talk about succession planning with your boss and with your HR, your diversity and inclusion council, make sure everybody knows what it is that you want to do. Because what I found early on in my career, if you don't speak up, they will make assumptions about what it is you want to do. And you want to be valued. You want to be considered an asset and not a liability. The more vocal you are about what it is you want to do, the more exposure you're going to get and the more experience you're going to get. People who just want to come in and kind of fly below the radar will always fly below the radar. I'm not a below the radar type person. When I started at Bristol Myers, my third month in, because you know, you go through that 90 day probationary period. I don't think they do that anymore. But I sat with my boss and I said, I want to talk about my career and what it is I want to do. And she was shocked because she said nobody had ever wanted to sit and talk about it because she said most people don't want to talk about it. And she said she was very pleased that I was taking the initiative to come to her and say, this is what I want to do. And I said to her, but I need help. I need help in making sure we put together a succession plan and I need checkpoints along the way to make sure that I'm still tracking. I also tell people, take the initiative to seek out feedback. Go to the person you engage with on an ongoing basis. Go to your manager every quarter. Ask for feedback, good, bad, and ugly, so you can course correct. So when you get your mid-year review and your year-end review, you know exactly what you're going to get, because one, people don't like to talk about it. People don't want to ask for the feedback. I sought out feedback. I also tell people, get a mentor. Get a mentor inside as well as external, because you want someone who is not married to the company someone who's going to give you honest feedback. And there's several different levels of mentorships. I have someone who is a personal mentor. I have someone who is a professional mentor inside and outside. I have mentors that don't even look like me because you need to have mentors that will give you honest feedback. Get people who are in different industries, who took different career paths. Because what I found is if you stick with a mentor inside the company, they will always toe the company line.
1: Very true. Wow. Those are some great tips, really amazing tips. There's more than five, and that's great. (laughs) Write them down, folks, because these are the things that will make a difference in terms of your career growth. So, Lori, thank you so much for spending this time with me. And your passion is just palpable for what you do and your commitment to the consumer that you serve. And that makes for a great career
0: yes you gotta love what you do
1: that's our show for today if you have questions about where to start in your beauty career drop us a line at hello at beautybizcamp.com remember there are many roads to success but each of them requires you to start so take that step forward today see you next time